It's June 23rd, and welcome to The Vegetable Beat, a live weekly discussion during the growing season for vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. I'm your host, Ben Phillips from MSU Extension. I'm here with Vicki Marone, Organic Systems Academic Specialist from MSU, and Jake Overgaard, Certification Specialist from the Midwest Organic Services Agency, or sorry, Association, MOSA. They are both here with me today to discuss some of the pitfalls and easily missed or commonly screwed up things that require extra time to remedy or could have gone smoother for organic certification. We'll be tackling it from multiple angles, from new growers to experienced growers, and uh, I hope you'll get something out of it. Uh, Welcome, both of you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having us. Thanks for asking. So for those of you who may be joining us live, we want to make sure that you can get your questions answered. So if you're listening live via Zoom with me today, uh, that you access through glveg.net slash listen, or if you're on Facebook through facebook.com slash veggiebeat, you can submit questions to us while we're talking through the comments box in Facebook or the chat in Zoom, and we'll try to answer them as we go. All right. So let's dive in then. Okay. You guys ready? Yeah, ready. Cool. So from, from my perspective, as someone who works with vegetable growers of all shapes and sizes on the east side of Michigan, different goals, different philosophies. I, I see organic markets seem to be growing, and I kind of see like two reasons why growers get into it uh, that they often cite, I guess, when I'm talking to them. One is for doing good for the world, and the other is doing what I have to for a better price, and sometimes the same reasons. Uh, I don't know, and, and sometimes the growers in the first camp the ones that are interested in doing good for the world are usually, but not always, newer, smaller. And growers in the second camp are usually, but not always, a bit more experienced, may have larger land base. What are you seeing? Is that is that a theme that translates to other areas? And what what can they learn from each other? What do they have in common? Um, Vicky, do you want to take that first? Sure. So regarding the reason for transitioning, your uh, help to improve the world. It's true. It's a lot of times it's the beginner farmer who you think about in order to farm, you have to have land. And unless you inherit a large piece of land to acquire land by capital, it takes, it takes a lot of capital. And Mm -hmm. if you're just beginning, you don't have any clout with a bank or credit union for a loan or very Mm -hmm. little. So you you do end up smaller a lot of times by default, not Mm only by choice and you being in vegetables, a smaller piece of land is doable to make uh, an enterprise versus if you're a field crop person, you know, a half an acre of, of wheat or oats would, wouldn't fly. It would hardly be worth it mm-hmm. uh, unless you're doing it for ornamentals, table settings or something. And, um, but another reason I find that farmers say when we want to do it for the world, it's, it's they want to do it for their family because they've had an incident of illness in the family. That's a lot of... Um, I've heard of that story a lot. My brother, um, we were we grew up on a farm and we were conventional and my brother died of cancer and he was 45. Or um, we, uh, we found that our uh, well was so contaminated with uh, pesticide from leaching that we, you know, we couldn't even clean it up. We had to end up digging another well. And so we figured if, if that's what's happening to our groundwater, we don't want that to be part of our lives. So that's kind of the other reason I, I find people changing um, to organic, but the markets is true. I see people that are, um, uh, I, last week I presented at the virtual MSU 
e-virtual breakfast and I focused on field crops. And uh, one farm said, I've got to, I can't get bigger. We all heard get out or get big. Couldn't mm-hmm. get bigger because land was just too expensive. So rather than getting out, he said, I'm going to modify my business and find the new markets that pay a premium. And that would mm-hmm. be the um, organic. And typically you'll find organic prices. It depends on the commodity and the crop or the product. And if it's value added, but you'll get vegetables, 20, 30% increase at a, um, a wholesale level, or even the farmer's markets, I think are the biggest um, uh, under just under, under fair uh, price, if you could, because farmers will walk around before the market starts. They have their booth set up and they'll look at each other's prices and they'll, you'll see them sometimes change their signs because the other mm-hmm. guy is um, way under what they were going to sell and they want to be able to sell their product. Nothing worse than sitting at a farm stand and finding your lettuce wilting because your price is 20 cents higher than the other guy. So, yeah. um, so even if it is certified organic and they have their beautiful green NOP sign out or their certificate of certification, they do that because they want to see product move. So it's a juggling act. But wholesale direct sales is a different ballgame. If, you know, if somebody, I mean, Costco, they even, um, you see a lot of organic. So say a processor who, um, Bush Beans, Bush Beans, you know, they sell um, beans, they buy the wholesale bean and they process it they buy it for a contract price and so it's set price and in the vegetable world string beans there are a lot of string bean um, uh, buyers for frozen string beans there's baby food gerbers in the past has been a big buyer of organic food in in the great lakes region Um, so there when you have a contract you can get a more just price in organic because it's a wholesale uh, agreement between you and the marketer whereas the um when it's direct sales, it's a lot about relationships and a lot mm-hmm. about what is your very immediate competition. Yeah, I understand you there completely. Uh, Jake, do you have any observations on this? Sure, yeah. Well, I think what Vicki said about, um, you know, like farmers wanting to, you know, like health reasons, like I I knew a, I know a farmer locally who talks about his transition to organic was that he was just tired of getting off the sprayer and not being able to hug his kids, you know, mm. um, things like that. <laughs> Separate wash cycle for the yeah. washer and dryer. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. Yep. Um, but I think within what you described, I, th- I think there's a lot of crossover between those things. You know, it, it, there's a blend, you know, some people it's philosophy, some people it's, um, it's completely market driven and, and kind of everything in between. Um, at Mosa, we have a pretty diverse client base. We have anything from very, very small market gardeners to um, grain farmers that are certifying thousands of acres of organic land and um, you know varying levels of livestock size as well. Um, I think what I would add to what you described would be kind of that, that group of farmers that just naturally gravitates toward organic production and and whether it was certified or or not but they're essentially producing as organic or very close to it and you know their next step is just to you know maybe keep some more records or adjust a few practices uh, so that it it fits within um, the organic standards and and is is certifiable so an example there would be you know like your your dairy producer that is you know 
intensively managing pastures and and already most of their their dry matter intake is is coming off of pasture and so mm-hmm. um, they may they might be using very few uh, health inputs already or none at all almost and um, they're able to um, get through certification more easily and it, it's it's not necessarily a a specific choice but it just makes sense to them yeah yeah that, that way. That- I think we'll talk about pastures a little bit later. Uh, I hear about pastures a lot. Um, and um, yeah, so essentially the barriers for entry are already low for certain growers. And it's like, yeah, let's yeah. just walk through that door. Yeah, the bar mm-hmm. is low. You just have to step over it. And you're- right, but sometimes that bar is thick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> low and thick. <laughs> it's, it's thick. It's, it's burdensome. It, it has... Um, some nails sticking through it, you know? So let's talk, can we talk about that? I think that transitions perfectly into the next thing I wanted to ask, which is no matter what their goals are and what they, you know, might already have working for them towards this process, it's still, they're still, uh, they all have to go through the same thing uh, at that point when they choose to go this route. And so I guess I wanted to talk about that at a basic level, what is required and and when? Um, And I I guess, Jake, do you want to, I know you would you kick this off, Vicky. Uh, Jake is in this this organization to do yeah. it for a living, so I guess maybe right. I'll start with him. Sure, sure, sure. absolutely. Uh, so you need to be certified for whatever the product is that you plan to sell or represent as organic or um, feed to organic livestock. You need to be certified at the time that you plan to do that. So, for example, um, say in 2022. I'm growing corn and I want to sell that as certified organic. I need to have the certification certification process complete by the time I'm selling it. So here in Minnesota or, you know, Michigan, you're looking at um, likely sometime in November. So um, you're most likely at, at the, at the latest, you're contacting a, a certifier, you know, hopefully sometime in January or possibly sooner to, to get the ball rolling. Um, there are, it's also important to understand that there are different transition periods for different parts of the certification process. So, uh, land is a 36 month, uh, transition period where there must be no prohibited inputs during that time. And we're talking about different chemicals or, um, conventional seed treatments. Um, how long did you say on that? So 36 month transition for land. I just, I've never heard it said that way. Three years. I've heard heard three years. Three years. Okay. 36 months. For some reason we use, we use 36 months. Um, Okay. But it's. Minnesota understated. (laughs) It's like a baby. Yeah. Um, But it is also important to understand that like, if, if that land, for example, was fallow and it can be verified that it was fallow, you might be able to certify it just like that, you know? Um, I've so, heard that term called fast tracking. Yeah. So fallow mm-hmm. or it could have been land that was in CRP and you can mm-hmm. just get verification. Um, you know, it's typically a form that is filled out that says this land was fallow for this amount of time. Um, no inputs, um, no anything applied to it. And, you know, signed by by that manager just verifying um, that. So, and then we can get into animals. So the the um the certification timeline for a uh, a dairy animal would be one year um before you're going to be able to sell organic milk so you're going to be managing or organic feed is being fed to that animal or there's also 
it might be a little bit getting into the weeds, but you can do a um, third year transitional feed um, for those animals as well. Uh, for other ruminants and swine, they need to be managed organically from the last third of gestation or those pigs or calves or, or, or sheep or whatever it is. And then um, poultry needs to be managed organically since from day two of their life. So it's a little bit variable. That's kind of the, the basics of it. Um, if we're going to throw out some recommended resources, there's a really good um, uh, guide from uh, Moses. That is the guidebook for organic certification. That's what we refer clients to a lot of the time. Um, it goes over all those processes and and uh, and what it is for for different products and what. So I'll put that question. in the show notes. Yeah. When uh, when we're done, so, oh, go ahead, Vicky. Just quick question, Jake. You were saying a dairy is one year, and other animals um, were was a, a third trimester just from gestation during trimester had to be raised organically. Mm -hmm. So what, um, what about if it's a um, goat for milk? So I assume the dairy, when you say dairy, you're referring to not beef, obviously, but, but for milk production. So what about goats for milk? For for dairy, dairy goats, it would be that one year transition. Okay. So we could say dairy versus meat production. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you got your poultry because obviously poultry don't live very long. So if we waited three years, yeah. we'd have to put them in a wheelchair. <laughs> That'd be an old hen. <laughs> yeah. Watch it. <laughs> so um, how much does it cost for an organic certification? Uh, is that an easy thing to put a price tag on? Um, define easy. <laughs> um, like, for example, is there a... So there's obvious sort of hidden costs in that, especially if you're transitioning from one way of managing to another, there are some costs to learning that. Um, And then, but there's also a cost, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, sort of an annual cost or uh, like a fee for the service of being certified. So what what kind of cost did that, I guess I might call that a fixed cost instead of a variable cost. Well, I might be able to cover like, for example, what the cost is, like what a, and a, f- a farmer who's certifying through through Mosu would pay, and maybe Vicky wants to talk about, you know, like that other side of transition costs and, and okay. what the impacts are there. But um, so on our website for Mosa, it's mosaorganic.org, and we have our fee schedule um, that's on the certification information. I think under forms, and you can find you know, whether you're a um, livestock producer, crop farmer, uh, processor, handler. We have different fee schedules for those different groups because they have different levels of complexity and the time that it takes us to uh, get through that process. Uh, But for example, for crop and livestock producer, that first year uh, fee is, uh, I believe this year it's at $1,150, so $1,150. And crop and livestock includes vegetable producers? Correct. Okay. Yep. Um, for a like a processor handler, it's uh, thirteen fifty, and then from there, what we do um, at Mosa is our fee is based on your uh, gross sales, um, so it's a tiers system, um, so that adjusts just based on how much you're selling, and uh, that's the way that we we set our fees. Different certifiers have different fee schedules um, of varying level levels of uh, complexity and, and, uh, and rates. I'll also add that we have a, 
um, you can go through our transitional program. And what that does uh, is we will not necessarily get, we won't be doing an inspection annually, but we will review your organic system plans. We'll review the inputs that you're using or proposing for use. Um, we'll look through like your, your different, the seed use that you're, uh, that you have, and we'll just make sure that you're on track to become organic, uh, organically certified. We'll look at like the, the documentation that you're using to certify land, all that stuff. And that's $250 a year. And if you think about, you know, if you're a farmer who has been, is thinking about getting certified and to just come in cold and just be like, all right, here I am. Can I do this? And you've been working for three years trying to, to trying to get to that point. And if, you know, maybe there was a misunderstanding about a certain input or what it took to certify land or how to transition a, a, a dairy cow, um, that, you know, that annual review can really uh, eliminate those uh, potential errors and give some, give a farmer some peace of mind to understand what, um, what they're looking at and if they're on track for certification. So is the 1150 also an annual fee that would vary across different groups, but that's annual, but, and the 250 that you just talked about is for some additional transition type. Yeah. So the, so the 1150 is that, that first year price from there for a, a farmer that's um, ready to certify. Yeah. After that first year, then that that price is based on um, the gross, gross sales. sales. The two hundred and fifty gotcha. is only for farmers who are in transition. So, That's say for example, you wanted to certify uh, in twenty twenty five, you might contact Mosa in in January and enter into this program. We'd look through your organic system plan. We'd look through your um, your transition transitional plans for land and animals and and inputs as well as seed and and all that stuff and that would just be for two hundred fifty dollars per year. Okay, I missed yeah. the part about the. I heard gross sales and I, I didn't know where it fits. So I see I see that. Yeah. Okay, yep. that's interesting. So, so that's um and and like uh, Jake said that the, uh, every certifying agency um, varies. Okay, I think I think it'd be maybe this is a good time to bring in. You have your certifying agency, and there's over 250 or so in, this, in the U.S. A farmer can choose a certifier from anywhere in the U.S. as long as they're USDA certified. And that list can be found on the USDA AMS site. And I can send that link to you, Ben, so that you can include that. It shows the whole directory. Um, if I'm a farmer in Michigan and I want CCOF out of California to certify my land, I can do that. And then I pay their prices. And the government doesn't restrict the prices, but they do have a thing called cost share. And that comes through our farm bill. And okay. every four years, the farm bill is renegotiated. And this past time, the farm bill was negotiated so that there's only $500. And I say only because in the past, since they brought it on board of the re uh, cost share for organic farmers, it was 750. And this last go around, it's $500 or 50% of the cost for certification. And I say certification because there's other fees involved to um, pay for certification. There's the certification fees, which is what Jake would receive from MOSA. There's the, the fees to pay for the inspector. That's the person who comes to your farm and walks through the fields, 
your paperwork talks to you, wow. asks questions, right. looks at okay. things. How is it working? How is it not working? And they won't say, oh, you should be growing uh, crimson clover and not uh, just grass. They wouldn't say that. They say, how are you building your soil? And they would take that information. And then that all that information would be taken back to the headquarters at MOSA, for example, and they would review that to see if it passed the USDA requirements. So that way, that's, another, that's another fee then with the inspector yeah. that comes out. Okay. You, yeah. pay, you pay for the inspector's mileage as well as a fee for him or her to do the work. So I okay. recommend lots of times for farmers to say, do you have any neighbors who are organic farmers? Talk to them about their certifying agency. And if they are happy with them, perhaps go with them. You know, call them, interview them. I have a whole extension bulletin on um, getting certified and what questions should you ask a potential certifier? Because you as a farmer are hiring them. They are working for you. And if you don't like their style, go to someone else. Like I said, there's over 250, probably more by now out there. Um, and they can come from anywhere that as long as they're USDA certified. Uh, so you, you pay that fee, you pay membership fees lots of times to the certifier. Um, so that... Um, it depends on the sort of agency. And so that's, those are important questions to have that up front. What are your fees? How much are they? What, what's the percentage that I have to give back to you based on my sales? Sometimes it's 1%. Sometimes, you know, what's the percentage, Jake, at MOSA? Uh, it's not a, it's not a, I don't know what the percentage, if we have a, if those are determined on a percentage basis. I will just add that um, the fees that I noted include the a base fee for inspection. It, it could potentially... Uh, vary depending on the, the complexity, but the numbers that I okay. decided do in, include the inspection, which um, could vary a little bit, but generally are right around there. Okay. So the human so, transitional cost, um, remember there's three years, 36 months, whichever you want to call it. And um, that's, that's the time, not only for the land to, re, um, to receive only organic management, but it's also the time for you as a, as a farmer going into transition to try to figure all this out. And that's through talking to farmers, reading books, listening to podcasts, going to conferences, um, even calling up certifiers and asking questions, calling your extension educators and asking questions. Because um, we all know that, you know, you can read a book and it's generic, but here mm -hmm. this person, uh, Han Young wrote about, they have a 10 acre educational farm in Fort Wayne. Um, they're not sure if they're going to use organic practices. So their um, their challenges. I presume it's a vegetable farm. Um, you know, they're dealing with different people, different farms, different styles. How do they manage that organically? And that's why they might want to talk to somebody specific about their situation. And so those three years are a time for both the soil to to improve, to fight weeds, which weeds are the number one challenge for organic farmers because there's really no herbicides, chemicals to control. A little delay there. In organic. Oh, there it's burned um, or, or through just a, you know, a plastic mulch, some sort of mulching system. Um, so it's physical barriers or physical deterrence that manage. So, so Vicki, you touched on this and, and it's per, you're, you're like reading my mind on how I want to transition through this, uh, <laughs> this interview. So you, you, would, you spoke to one of the live listeners comments, Jane Young from Indiana about uh, transitioning, potentially transitioning a 10 acre farm. And, and I want to start talking about that for, can you, I'd like to start maybe with you, Vicki, and then go to Jake. When there's a new grower, not an experienced grower, but a new one, do you, rec do you think that it's a good idea for them to certify right away? 
or that, and you had already mentioned this three-year period of, of learning, that's good. Um, and there's learning that happens there. There's learning beyond that too. But do you recommend that they start off right away with starting to get some of this paperwork in and, and, or whatever? The paperwork uh, or- is often the, the biggest scaring factor in organic mm-hmm. systems. It's like, you know, everybody knows you have to keep some sort of bookkeeping to know if you're making a profit mm-hmm. or if you're losing your shirt. But beyond that, the packet of information of forms that are, is provided to you by certifying agency is daunting. No lie. I mean, I, um, I'm, I, I pushed myself into um, having a, a chance to certify land at Kellogg Biological Station for a research project. And I'm, I mean, you know, I talk to, to agencies, I talk to inspectors all the time, but living it is a whole different ballgame. And filling out the forms, you know, you fill out the forms and then you realize how does that apply to my system? Does it apply to my system? Mm. And then you, so you ask questions. That's something you can ask your inspector. And even if you're not, I mean, your um, agency, even if you're not yet paying for the agency, I mean, most of doesn't want to hear this. No agency wants to, but anybody can pick up a phone and chances are that certifying agency is going to answer your question, even if you're not a paying member, because, you know, minorities stick together. Organic mm-hmm. is a minority in the, in the food world, right? Mm-hmm. We want to help each other. Um, I would say 90% of the agencies are in it for the whole reason, not just the income reason. And so mm-hmm. they're there. They want to help, help growers um, understand the system to see if the system is good for them. And whether a person uh, certifies that year, you know, after the three years or say they, they got a piece of land that was fallow. And they have that opportunity if they wanted fallow and no inputs. I mean, you can have fallow and you sprayed Roundup on the edges. That disqualifies it, right? So, mm-hmm. but fallow with no illegal inputs. I always make that uh, emphasis. And so they can tra- have the legal right to transfer that as or, or transition that into organic in one year. But is that smart? Do they have a market? Do they have a market that is interested in their organic produce? Do they have... The, uh, the equipment to manage it properly. Um, if, if they are, um, say for example, a brand new farmer, they're sharing land with somebody. Is that, is that land conventionally farmed? And how are they gonna manage that to keep it organic? Because there's all these challenges of keeping separation, both mm-hmm. in the field and in the storage. So there's lots of learning and lots of sometimes additional costs because you have to have a barriers between the conventional and organic systems. And that's the split the split operation is what they call it, where you can have both, but it takes a little more. Um, so if a, in an ideal world for a farmer to say, I'm ready to go organic. I have everything. Uh, my heart's in it. My, um, I have figured out my uh, certifying agency that I want to go with. And I have a market down the street close by so they're not going to spend everything on transport they want delivery three times a week and i have two restaurants in my community that want organic and and this is it they're they will pay me a premium for that organic certification there are restaurants that say we want organic but when you talk price they're going right back to conventional Mm -hmm. and maybe you think well i'll start it that way and then show them how good the product is but if you're a brand new farmer even conventional perfect quality, beautiful produce is challenging. So I feel test your markets, test your clients, your customers, and test your skills for a few years. Ask them you know, if, what, what works and what doesn't and test the, the market for the prices. Try, try, you know, once in your second year, you're doing a great job 
go ahead and um, up your price. Uh, indicate verbally. That's all you can really do is that you are using organic practices. You're transitioning to organic. You cannot display that green label until you're certified organic. Um, so yeah, and then and if people say your stuff is good and I'm really happy you're you're um, using organic practices, yeah, I'll pay a dollar more for that basket of tomatoes. Then you know you've then you're ready. So to so to Jane's comment in uh, in the chat, then I noticed the word education farm is in there. I think it might be useful for you to def to very thoroughly define what your market is, whether it's the produce that comes off that farm or the fact that you're educating, Students. and if it's an organic product that you're that you'd like to get a premium for at market, that's one thing. The educational part could be another revenue stream. I'm not exactly sure what you have set up, but do you get a premium for organic education? That's right. a question worth asking. And for organic education versus IPM, integrated pest management, or um, just uh, smart, smart farming practices, mm -hmm. environmental practices. To Jane's question, I think what I would say is, you know, it's June. Uh, you're probably really busy right now, but if you get a rainy day, um, start calling around to certifiers, shop around a little bit, ask them what the process is, tell them what your situation is, and they'll be able to give you some information and feedback about what the process is at, at that particular certification agency and, and how how they can meet your needs for for your uh, educational farm. So start, start making some calls and chatting with people. Um, check with other educational farms like yourselves. Like uh, we at MOSA certify uh, land that universities are, you know, doing research on or um, similar education. situation to, to what you're doing with education and, you know, other certification agencies certainly do as well. So um, I start making some calls and chatting with people about, about what works for them. So Jake, we, oh, can I ask Jake a follow-up to that, Vicki? Yeah, sure. I was just going to say Michigan State has an organic farming training program that they could reach out to if they ever wanted to share notes. That's true. Yeah, the student yeah. organic farm in East Lansing. Um, so uh, Jake, you said start calling around. And before the call, before we got on, um, went live, uh, you talked briefly about how the actual, the inspectors from that would come out to the farm and review things are often contracted mm -hmm. for, and, and it's almost like Lyft and Uber. You can drive for both companies as long as you're not displaying Lyft and then picking up Uber or, or vice versa. Right. Mm -hmm. So when, how much does an individual inspector who might be local, right. But working for several different certifying agencies as a subcontractor, how much do they carry the flavor of one certifying agency over another? And would it be worth talking to them? Um, you know, I feel like they might see a lot more and they might represent essentially more than one certifying agency in terms of like what 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 they bring to questions that someone might ask. Or is it or is it better to go right to the top of those organizations? Talk to someone like you from Mosa, for example. Yeah, I think I mean, yeah, if you if you have a contact who's an inspector, I mean, I think, you know, as as much information as you can pull from from other people, you know. They may be also a little bit limited about what they can say, you know, just sure. depending on, on, you know, policies and, and whatnot. But yeah, if you, if you've got a contact who's an inspector, um, you know, I also whatever find methods them, you got. I also find the inspectors to be very loyal to who they, who hires them. Right. I see. Um, and, and, and just like, you know, if you're going to go put, putting down your institution, you might not have a job very long. <laughs> right. True. So, yeah. um, 
they have to be loyal that, that aspect but you know they but the the way to the check and balance that the system has is the inspector comes to your farm and you have filled out the paperwork specific to that agency now granted it's all usda nop uh, information needed but every instant every agency has its own flavor on the forms and so you filled out those forms and those forms will then be taken back to headquarters where jake is for example with mosa and reviewed by that team the inspector won't review that okay. he or she is just there for to provide ultra clarification of those forms so he, They'll write up a report about what they saw, they didn't see, what questions they asked, where they suspect there might be a problem on the paperwork. And that's the agency that will take it in their hands and, and put their blessing on it or refuse it, whichever, depending on um, situations. Okay. So the, the last part I want to get into then with the remainder of our time is what are the what are the most common mistakes that you see as people start to certify, the things that they curse about? Not just not just the work, right? Not just like ah, oh, there's paperwork, but like if you were going to the DMV, right, and you forgot something, and now you got to go back and stand in line, and it was mm-hmm. easy enough if you'd just known you needed two or three forms of identification before you went, then you'd be mm-hmm. set. You know, what are the are there things like that mm-hmm. with the process that that you would say are thematic, maybe mm-hmm. with new growers or with experienced growers? Anything any difference between a new grower and experienced grower in terms of the mistakes that get made? I think the paperwork is like uh, just realizing uh, how to uh, reduce their workload. If they're not computer literate, doing it by hand it can be really cumbersome. Okay. And um, and make for a really neat shoebox. I mean, literally, there are growers that keep things in the shoeboxes and a filing system. So having a really tight filing system, whether that's an electronic filing system or um, in your shoebox, so that when you are trying to figure out which varieties were successful last year, mm-hmm. which varieties um, were f- the people hated the flavor, or um, what now what in, which what combination of neem and surround did I use to uh, manage that pest? Does a certifier need to know about the what the customers thought of flavor though? Is that some extraneous no, type of record keeping? Money. If you are going to make money, you have to know what the customer wants, right? So it's a combination of meeting NOP's requirements and meeting your bottom line. Got you. So if you don't have those two together, it's not worth bothering with. Okay. Jake, what do you see? I'm sure you you actually probably get – do you get angry phone calls? (laughs) No, never, never. Everybody's happy. Okay. (laughs) You know what? Honestly, honestly, I – I, I so much enjoy speaking with farmers because, you know, we're, we're in the, we're in the depths of the details. I'm a certification yeah. specialist. So like I am looking at like what fields you grew on last year, what fields you're growing on this year, how many acres each one is, what kind of inputs are you being used on each one? And so when I get a call from a farmer that like has a question or even if they want to rant, like just rant at me and we'll talk about it. We'll figure it out. Um, I'm uh pretty easygoing guy and and i can totally understand when people get frustrated because organic certification is a challenge i mean it's it's i'd be i'd be a bold-faced liar if i said oh it's gonna be easy you're fine like don't worry about it no it's a challenge there you have to set up processes and you have to have a system that works for you and and so the other thing is that you're gonna screw up in some way the big thing is to not screw up 
in a major way that's really going to impact your certification. So any okay. kind of uh, prohibited input or, you know, different, different issues that are just ongoing and, and don't get fixed. Yeah. Those can be problematic. You know, sometimes it's, it's a matter of communication. You know, sometimes if, if we send a letter and we don't get a response and then we send another letter and we don't get a response and then we call you or email you and we're still not getting a response that can end up being problematic. But you know, if, if it's, there are, are some things that are just like kind of small things that, you know, one year you might, you might've lost the seed tag for the soybeans that you planted, or you didn't record one of your manure applications or stuff like that. That's stuff that, that can be corrected. We might say, Hey, you didn't do this next year. Make sure that you do it. Um, so, but, but I have an example that I had a screw up on the field that I was working with and we had seed um, that was from a project that was going ongoing and it was stored. So it had good germination and everything, but um, the person, the, this is at a, a, a university field station. So the person who did the planting assumed, well, this is this, this is a project continuing. So I'll just use that seed from last year. And lo and behold, it was a seed that was treated with a pesticide that wasn't allowed. So it was a problem, but a, not a huge problem. So I had plots just like you'd have rows at a vegetable farm that I had a map of everything of what was what, when it was planted, what was planted. And with that, I had corresponding seed tags. I take pictures, photos of my seed tags, and that's how I store them on an electronic file. And so I could see that that was, that seed was treated with an illegal substance. I wasn't the laborer. I wasn't the person who planted. So that's what happened. There was communication error. Um, the person grabbed the seed because it was part of the project, continuing project that we had now transitioned to organic and he didn't put all the pieces together that, oh, this is a different, organic requires untreated seed. And so just to those three plots out of 56 got pulled from organic and they had to with go, forego organic certification for three years. And yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so that's, that's why I say, you know, little mistakes um you know we can make fixes in future years and it's not necessarily going to impact your uh certification in the you know in the short term but mm -hmm. you know big problems like whoops i used some roundup or yeah. i used the treated seed or um, drift drift is a problem yeah. Yeah. you know if the neighbor's field uses an illegal substance and it contaminates your field that's why it's really important yeah. to report that and have it tested to see the, the how extensive the damage was in your field. Because if, if it's only the third of the field that tests positive, is this true? The certifying agency can say, okay, you can use that half, give yourself the 25, 50 foot buffer between the uh, contaminated versus uncontaminated. And you can count the, the untreated or the uncontaminated side as organic still. Have you ever seen that, Jake? Yeah, I mean, there would be a, a follow-up inspection typically to see the extent of the drift and, and understand uh -huh. what areas of the field were, were impacted. And so there there could be variability of, of what is no longer organic and needs to retransition and what isn't. I think Man, that would really stink. Yeah. I, could see that be, I could see that whole process being essentially this i'm trying to i'm about to make up a word i could see it discouraging people from even wanting to report it just yeah. letting it coast you know well the, i mean I'll, I'll i'll note that you know the relationship between a farmer and a certifier i mean that's there's a lot of trust there and 
and you know we we want to trust farmers and 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 the consumer needs to be trusting of this process mm-hmm. as well or or it's going to lose its integrity and and value in the market and mm-hmm. and all of that stuff um but i would also just mention you know it's really important you know if you have conventional neighbors be communicating with them let them know that um you're organic and, and uh, understand you know what what they're doing and just, you know, having that neighborly communication. Work hard to be their friend too. Not just tell them about (laughs) it, but but really work hard to, because there's conventional farmers who like, they, they believe it's hogwash about organic and they don't want to be bothered with it. But you know, a bag, a basket of fresh vegetables can go a long way and a friendly handshake um, every season because that relationship is so important. And so that when they're spraying, they let you know, that when, um, you know, just you, you give them friendly reminders that if it's windy, please, you know, respect that. So just little things like that. Yeah. The, the other thing that I'd mention is that um, I was just talking with a coworker yesterday about this, um, is that if, if you're paying a certifier a fee, use that certified take advantage of the services that they provide don't just oh. sit out there and just pay your money wonder because <laughs> now, now you're working for them too yeah we're working for you yeah like, i never thought of call. it that way if you have a question about an input or need to know about you know hey i'm, I'm thinking about trying to do this new thing or um any kind of question you have call us like call us and ask us and and we're happy to walk through what the standards are and and try to figure things out together because you know what honestly sometimes people call and it's like i need to think about that a little bit because the standards in some areas are are pretty specific and and clear about what needs to happen um but in some areas there's there's some interpretation and um, the need to kind of apply that to this specific situation. And, and it may not be readily clear, which is uh, sometimes a challenge, but also a benefit to farmers, I think, because mm-hmm. it's not prescriptive of what you must do. Um, and there's some room for you to work within what is what is required. And I generally find farmers to be pretty creative folks that can uh, devise systems that um, Fit, fit their needs. So. Right. There's more than one way to do organic. Um, a resource I just stuck up in the chat is, um, Jake, you mentioned call your certifier. That's absolutely, if you're going to use a brand new uh, product that you've never used before, always check with your certifier. But uh, to begin to know as, if the product is even allowed in organic, you can contact your online omri.org, O-M-R-I.org, and it has an online um, free catalog that you can check. And, but it's always important to check with your certifying agency to see if a product is really allowed. So yeah, Omri listings and certifier um, uh, the, um, uh, feelings on it don't always uh, mesh. Uh, no, they don't. There are some yeah. certifiers that are very um, uh, strict in their um, approaches to pr- new products and making sure that they really have uh, all organic ingredients on granite uh, processing you know like if they're doing any like you mentioned with the honey during our conversation some of these use diatomaceous earth um, and you know making sure that it's kosher in the organic certification world um, and and then sometimes a bit beyond and agencies pride themselves we're a little more strict than NOP we're allowed to be more strict not less strict and mm-hmm. and so they it's building I their see. integrity 
of kind of like how with the the EPA regulates pesticides, but each state does as well, and each state can be more restrictive than the federal level. Exactly the same. I understand. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And it is important to understand that other products are can be approved for organic that are not listed on the OMRI list. So oh, it goes the other way too. Well, no, this is because a company doesn't pay. Yeah, a company they have there's a fee involved to get listed on the OMRI list, and so uh, there may be products that you can get locally from yeah compost mixes and such yeah that that can be that can be approved but in in those cases it's especially important to check with your certifier right that's a great point i'm glad you threw that in there jake i i'd never heard it said in in those words and it makes it makes it very clear that's good so so for example you have a new product online that's locally and you think it's organic um so you would say your certifier says well are you the agency says, we don't know that product. So you would go back to the company and you would ask them for information about the product and they may end up having a conversation with the certifying agency about the process and stuff because there's disclosures of, of you know, maybe mm-hmm. a patented or, or at least uh, private recipes or private processes yeah. that they don't want to tell everybody, but we need to know in order for it to be um, understood if it's really organic. So I bet that takes a lot of time. I bet that, that's why you that pay part probably takes a lot of time. Right. That's why Omri charges. They that's what they do. They investigate the process and they learn about how not only was it um, are the ingredients, but also the process to make that product yeah. um, yeah, we, have a, we have a materials review team at Mosa that goes through um, new inputs that are requested for for approval. And I think if if uh, if they could ask me to say one thing, I would it would be to, you know, get in touch early about new products if you can. You know, we can sometimes get those reviews done quickly. But, you know, if it's a brand new product that we haven't seen before, we might, like like Vicky describes, you know, get in contact with the manufacturer to get an ingredients list and, and more information about that product. So that's another another area where you can go more smoothly. Um, folks are timely about that kind of thing. But I understand, you know, sometimes you've got, um, you know, like potato beetles are tearing up your crop and you need something ASAP that you didn't know you needed to need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Okay. Well, I think I've gotten to the end of my questions here and, uh, we got that one, that really great one from Jane in the chat that we spent some time mulling over. That was a good one, Jane. Thanks for asking it. Um, it really fit the theme of this. It's like, what, what should I, should I do it? Maybe, I don't know. I can't decide. We talked all about that. So thank you both for coming. Uh, This show is put on by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, a group of extension educators and researchers from across the Great Lakes region, sponsored by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. We broadcast live via Zoom at 1230 Eastern Time, 1130 Central Time every Wednesday. And uh, you can get to us at glveg.net slash listen. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking about what Ben Whirling is going to be doing the interview. He's going to be talking to Celeste Welty from Ohio State University Mm. uh, about organic cucumber beetle management, actually. So another organic topic next week, cucumber beetles, a huge pain in the butt for everybody, including conventional growers. So should be interesting. Um, So Vicki, Jake, thank you again for being here today. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks for having me. They're good questions. I really appreciated the discussion and, and uh, having Vicki here. It was nice to get the, the educator um, 
perspective as well. So thanks for having us. Great. Okay. Well, you both have a good week and I hope to talk to you again soon sometime. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Jake. Sounds good. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.